0: Welcome to Hanging on for Hope. I'm your host, Andrea Page. Hanging on for Hope is the stories about people working to overcome trauma and adversity. From incarceration to kids in crisis to postpartum depression, we hear from everyday people on what they are going through and how they get through it. We're also going to hear from experts on the latest strategies, supports, treatment, and brain science for overcoming adverse life experiences. Today's guest is an expert. She's a postpartum well, a maternal mental health therapist. I'm actually going to put the mic over to her, so to speak, because she does so many wonderful things that I would love her to explain it best herself. But before I do that, I want to say one of the things that has struck me most about Olivia Scoby and her work is the shame-free attitude that she brings to dealing with trauma and mental health and, and how taking that piece out of it is a, is a huge piece of the puzzle. So thank you for coming today, Olivia.
1: Thank you so much for having me. Um, uh, yep, I'm Olivia Scoby. I am a, a social work counselor and a sociologist of gender and family relations. Um, and I specialize in all things perinatal. So I work in my private practice with clients who have perinatal depression anxiety. Um, birth and reproductive trauma, loss, and then I also run Postpartum Support Toronto, which is a not-for-profit that um, provides no-cost services um, to parents in the GTA who are looking for some support navigating this time because it's a really complicated time in our lives when we have um, young ones at home.
0: Yeah, it is a really complicated time. I find that You know, and I love that you've got that background in sociology, too, because for me, I'm always I love to tell stories and I love to hear people's stories. But I also really I want to understand why we're struggling so much. And I also want to understand the things that we can all be doing individually and collectively to start shifting and changing the experience of motherhood that unfortunately too many women are having.
1: Yeah, and it's so interesting when we start to look at people's individual stories, um, there's a collective narrative that comes out where people share a lot of really similar things around feeling unsupported um, either by their community, if they are partnered by their partner, um, people struggling with like responding to the needs of their children and how our children's cries can really set off our nervous system and how challenging that is to try to respond to if you have you a know, high needs kid who's, who's crying a lot. Um, and just the identity pieces of, of how we define ourselves as good parents or, or not good parents and how it's so much more complicated than good or bad. But it does feel very much like we have to prove to ourselves and to our communities that we're good. And not just good enough, but really good. Um, because of this idea that children are so precious and innocent, um, uh, which is true and not true simultaneously, because children have internal resourcing in the same way we all have internal resourcing. But there's a huge amount of pressure with marginalized parenting communities needing to perform the good muttering performance um, because of the risk of losing their children in ways that uh, non-marginalized parents don't face in, in with the same sort of scrutiny.
0: Well, it's interesting. You said so many things that I want to respond to already. Mm-hmm. You talked about the nervous system being triggered by, um, you know, babies crying, for example. Um, I often quote in some of the things that I talk about or write about, you know, that the sound of an infant's crying was actually used in wartime uh, mm. to as a form of torture, um, which, which really... Surprising yet not surprising to me yeah. and as a mother who went through severe postpartum depression with my first and was really really isolated at that time yeah. um, You know having that understanding Understanding what you're going through and recognizing physical symptoms Is it goes a long way to helping yourself? Mm-hmm. But when you don't know why something is happening and you're not conscious of it and you're just in a very reactive state um, it can be it can be very very scary, and I think that's the other piece that I wanted you to get a chance to touch on is that you know while motherhood in of itself can really uh, trigger a lot of maternal mental health issues, that there is a a bigger and perhaps unknown risk not unknown to professionals but unknown to individuals uh, that when you perhaps have unresolved trauma or trauma that you think you've resolved. Mm -hmm. And everything, the floodgates can open again once you become a parent.
1: Yeah, yeah. And that's that's absolutely true. And um, sometimes that's, you know, when I think of trauma, I think of it in a few different ways. Sometimes that's relational trauma. So we come face to face with the unresolved stuff from our own childhoods sometimes, and how we try to parent either in opposition to our caregivers or our parents we try to replicate the things that they were doing, which is helpful because that's where we learned how to be a caregiver. Um, But it's okay that we're different and knowing that parenting comes in trends and there's different styles for each generation and different things that are important for each generation. Um, And so sometimes those childhood histories can become really, we can sit in them really intensely with our own. Um, And then sometimes it's about Again, when we look at the nervous system, if we have unresolved trauma in the body, um, and we know that children crying can set off our nervous system really quickly, it can feel like we are reliving our trauma in many ways because that flight, you know, fight, fight. Oh, I'm going to mess up the words. Fight, <laughs> flight, freeze or fawn response um, can turn on when when our children are crying, and and it takes a lot to. Um, Expand our our comfort uh, with you know discomfort the window I know of I also, tolerance. the window of tolerance of like what we can tolerate and I had a really high-needs baby the first time and I felt like my body was on fire with how much uh, he cried and I, I couldn't sort of capture um, uh, like going through a full stress cycle of, okay, my nervous system is turned on and now I'm safe and now I can turn it off again because it never felt safe for us, and that was really, really hard on my mood and really ramped up my anxiety
0: as well. Wow, you describe my experience of first time motherhood with my older son so perfectly. And I know there's so many women out there who are going through that and not re- perhaps recognizing it that something's wrong and then feeling there's something wrong with me, like, why wow. can't I? Why can't I cope? Why am I, why am I like this? Why can't I cope? And again, it's that vicious cycle of shame because, well, I'm not coping and I'm not being the mother I should be. So there's something wrong with me. I don't want to feel this way, but I don't know how to stop it.
1: Yes. And, and part of that is a pathologizing of the experience of um, the push-pull of motherhood. And there's a perinatal, uh, perinatal psychiatrist, Alexandra Sachs, who talks about this concept called metriacence. And that is um, likening the experience of becoming a mom to the experience of going through adolescence. So, if you gave birth to your children, there's some hormonal pieces that are happening, much like an adolescence, and a huge identity piece happening. And she talks about how there's a, a, a push-pull towards wanting to respond to the needs of your baby, but simultaneously wanting to respond to your own needs and the other non-maternal parts of you, like your intellectual self, your social self, your sexual self, career self. And it can be really confusing to be like, the baby needs me right now. And I so badly need to just take care of myself or so badly just want to like snuggle up with my partner right now. And it can create this feeling of ambivalence of I want to respond to the baby and I don't. I want to take care of my needs and I don't. And, And she said that that's actually normal. That's a really normal experience. But we talk about it like it's not. We talk about it like we are supposed to meet our babies and fall in love and feel bonded and willingly be be able to sacrifice all those other parts of us. Um, But that's not the norm of people's experiences. The norm is that they're like, this is really hard. And I simultaneously want to be with my baby and simultaneously don't at the same time.
0: But do you not also think that this is being like, it is a normal response under the conditions, but don't, are you, uh, I've always felt that the conditions in which mothers are meant to mother in, in modern cultures are the problem in of itself, right? I've never even loved the term postpartum depression, Um, even though I know that there is chemical, there is tangible reasons why you would certainly call it postpartum depression at times. To me, it's also felt like a label that victim blames in a little bit, in a bit of a way, like saying, you know, here's this mom who's not coping, she's the one, she's the one who's struggling. It's her mental health issues. But if I were to put the right support system around her and I was, and I was allowed, I was going to create a context in which she, which she could sleep, where she could have regular breaks, where she was being mothered by her community. And she was given security by her community while facing this, that this experience of postpartum depression would at least become much less intense if not go away completely.
1: Yeah, and usually when I talk about what happens with our mood uh, perinatally or postpartum, I look at a few different buckets that have a pretty pretty big impact. So the first is looking at the biological impact. Whether or not you gave birth, we do have hormonal Mm -hmm. changes that happen when we start caring full time for a baby if you've given birth, there's a huge drop in estrogen and progesterone. Our thyroid takes quite a beating when we are giving birth. Sometimes our iron levels can. Um, So there's that piece happening there. We often will have a spike in oxytocin um, when we are caregiving. um, And that will help us feel, you know, sometimes close and connected. It's that love hormone. And then there's a whole bunch of stuff happening with neurotransmitters. We know that you know, when you're working with somebody who has depression, anxiety, and they're not postpartum, the things that we tell them to do are focus on your sleep, focus on a routine, you know, try to reduce your stressors. And that is actually in opposition to what postpartum life is like. But biology is just one bucket. Then uh, I often think about um, what's happening with our um, our risk factors, circumstantial risk factors. We know that if you have uh, relational distress, so if, you have, if you're partnered and things aren't going well with your partner, that can amp up uh, your experience of depression and anxiety. If you've had birth or reproductive trauma, a history of trauma, um, if you uh, are really low income, if you are very isolated, all of those things will contribute to having uh, lower mood. And some of those things are solvable and some of those things are not solvable. So when working with clients, I'm like, okay, so let's try to solve um, the solvable issues right now. If you don't have enough support, how can we get really creative uh, with that bucket? And the yeah. next piece is looking at identity and the critical importance of feeling like you got this, feeling like no matter what happens, I'm going to be able to navigate this and um, getting a lot of encouragement and support. Yes, you're going to get through this. Yes, I'm going to help you. Yes, you're doing a really good job. And a lot of people don't get Positive encouragement because of the ways in which we measure what it means to be a good mom and what it means to be a good mom right now is really intense. We're parenting in the crazy of possible parenting where we're supposed to um, uh, demonstrate our love for our children largely through sacrifice. We are supposed to look like we have it all together. We're supposed to be positive all the time. We're supposed to. Uh, you know, look to researchers and to experts to tell us how to be a good parent, but all of the research is contradictory. We can find research to support just about any position that we want when it comes to parenting. So it's incredibly confusing, I think more so than ever before, about um, what it means to be a good parent. And then all of this is happening within a very specific socio-political culture that Uh, privileges individualism so we don't parent in community anymore that um, has us working really really long hours out of the house That it is really hard to make enough money to sustain ourselves and to buy all of the you know services that we would like to in order to just be able to take care of our kids like doulas and and nannies and meal plans and um, laundry services and cleaners and all the things that it takes to keep a household running um, and so it's particularly challenging right now to figure out how we're going to balance it all, and all of those things impact our mood in really specific ways and then, of course, there's like thinking patterns and thought patterns, so people who are prone to perfectionism, people who are prone to critical thinking um they tend to struggle a little bit more too and and people who have had um uh, really. Sometimes I don't like the term high-powered careers, but people who were really in their zone or in their career that had a lot of control over their day-to-day, they can find it really hard to yes, give to another. And and wanting to access that like productive energy of like, great, I crossed things off my to-do list. When parenting is not crossing things off your to-do list, it's reproductive: feed the baby, change the baby, put the baby to sleep, do it again. And it's just doing that same um, tasks over and over. And I've really struggled with that. I was like, I want to do anything (laughs) differently than what I'm doing right now.
0: Yeah. No, for sure. You don't, because you're not in control of your life at that moment. Yes. Right? I mean, this little human is. And I think because we are not parenting in community, although, I mean, because I live in a smaller community now, Mm -hmm. um, and I've also seen mother's mother all over the world, just through my Mm -hmm. travels and life. I I find it really interesting when I do see the, the unique, so for example, I had a client who had five kids who came and I was like, wow, you're so calm. And she goes, yeah, I live with my mom and my grandma. Like Mm -hmm. she goes, I leave the house whenever I want. I do what I want. Like we all take care of those kids. And I was like, wow, (laughs) looking in awe. Yeah. (laughs) Like, right. That intergenerational living. And, and I think in, and so I'm curious because one thing that I love your group online, that's actually where I first kind of learned about you. Uh, I know, you know, another mom in our community had, mentioned the group to me. And I, I went in and I, I saw that the way, the way the women were communicating, mm-hmm. which was definitely a, a culture that you had created in that group where there was literally absolutely nothing anyone could say that would be met with judgment mm-hmm. that any, that, that a mom could share there her worst darkest fear. Mm-hmm. And the group has really learned with your coaching how to respond and hold space and help this woman problem solve. So fantastic. And I think, you know, that's the piece, right? Because, you know, over the years when I've seen or had women in my classes in crisis, I I remember this story once of a mom, well, a story, a real event that happened of a mom walking in and she was actually new to the country. Uh, And it was a room full of about 20 women. And she came in and she really firmly put her baby down on the ground. Like, and it was aggressive. Right. And I was, you know, I was a bit taken aback at the moment too, but I instantly knew this was a woman that was in crisis. Mm. Um, but the group of women responded to her so negatively. Mm. And I remember looking at the mom and saying, Take a walk. I'm going to come get you. I looked at the moms and I said, Watch this baby. And I'm going to come back and deal with all of you in a minute too. Yes. <laughs> like, and yeah. then I went and I supported the mom and I said, Like, and again, right, this is, outs- I've always kind of been an outside the box thinker. I, I always, I'm about people before business any day of the week. Yeah. And I, you know, I just held space for the mom for a few minutes and told her she could take the time that she needed. And that when she came back, that I was going to sit with her and we're going to try to figure this out. Yeah. And then I went back into the room and I said to the moms, I know that was really, really upsetting, but the way that some of you responded, not cool right this is a mom in crisis and we have to we have to protect her we yeah. have to protect her baby we don't we don't get to stand and judge and shame her that's not changing anything yeah right and I think it, it was interesting because I don't know if that if I handled it right at the time I just handled it instinctually right it was mm-hmm. just for me it was like no, no 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 this is not what we're doing we're not we're not subscribing to this way of taking a hurt person and isolating them. We're going to mm-hmm. actually bring them closer to us. Yes, it was uncomfortable to watch that, but we can't just, what are our choices? And I think it goes back to what you said. So the typical thing that people do in these, in these moments, right, because now she's kind of outed herself mm-hmm. publicly, which is a cry for help, obviously. But so a lot of times people are like, well, we should call the children's aid or we should mm-hmm. do this or we should do that. And I'm like, uh. I don't know. Like it's, you know I, I don't know if you heard the story I read the other day about a family doctor client of mine who anonymously sent a email about having those exact same kind of very dangerous moments with her newborn infant mm-hmm. after counseling women for 10 years, mm-hmm. thinking she knew what it was like or thinking that she recognized her breaking point. And I think that's the piece is that the, this is the social piece that really irks me is that we, when, when a crisis happens with a mom, I always think to myself, my first thought always is, where was the community?
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Like, because, and if it's a tragic crisis, nothing we're going to do, we can't, it's, we can't reverse and stop that. But we can figure out what we did wrong to try to prevent it again.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Right? And I think, you know, I, I, what this other mom said to me the other day, it's like, it is so irresponsible of society to leave mothers alone
1: Mm -hmm. yeah
0: and then to blame them for tragic outcomes
1: yeah and often um i do want to flag that the postpartum support toronto group i mean it's the people in that group they they are the ones who really make it safe uh in terms of how they show up for each other and a few times we've had people um, say things that were unsupportive and the group just managed it. That's like, this how, how we talk to each other here. We, whatever your, your parenting practices are, we are like totally fine to love and support you. Um, but yeah, my, often in those moments where, um, you know, somebody's having a really tough time, I'm like, if we imagine that everybody wants to be a loving caregiver, what's getting in the way of that? What's getting in the way, right? If we like, so something else is going on there um in those moments and so that's really what I'm curious about not the behavior itself but the often in those moments it's just the grind of parenting that can really wear on you and again back to the nervous system if you imagine that she drove for 20 minutes with the baby screaming at her yeah you're you're really done in that moment you need the opportunity to collect yourself but because of the grind of parenting and by that I mean you know it's not one instance with a crying baby it's not one time being up all night it is the ongoing repetition of, I don't know when I'm going to get a break. I actually don't know. And mm-hmm. I have to keep going. Um, that really wears us down. And that's where people reach their breaking point, I think. Of, I don't know how and when I'm going to be able to care for myself because so much of new parenting is done in isolation. Um, I don't have somebody I can hand off to. I don't get to go to the bathroom whenever I want. I don't even get to eat necessarily, depending on what my day is looking like and it's brutal
0: it is what practical advice do you have to women who are who might be listening to this and are like oh my gosh like she's describing me and you know and I think that's the thing too like I think so many women in those situations they will hint or maybe even directly ask for help and still not get it
1: yeah Um, so there is research on resiliency so we've talked a lot about what makes it hard but there's also things that that help and so um, there's some 2009 research by a researcher named Nack who asked the question, what makes it easier for parents? And she came up with six um, uh, concepts or practices that when they're in place, those parents tend to have an easier time. And the first one is looking at the role of self-care. And I know that self-care is a really uh, popular term right now that people are, are using in lots of different ways. But often when I'm working with new parents and we're we're touching on this idea of self-care, I think of it in four really specific buckets. So there's what I call, you know, the stuff the more I do, the better I feel. Um, and so that's all the things that we typically think of, of self-care, like, you know, getting massages and and getting more sleep and and going out with friends. But that's not stuff that like we can or should do every day. And that stuff that sometimes is, uh, requires resources, time and financial resources that we don't have. And then there's the self-care stuff that I call coping in tough moments. So that is, there's no such thing as good or bad. That is like, set your baby down, walk away, take a break, eat ice cream, you know, out of the freezer, you know, whatever it is that you need to do to get through those moments where you're feeling out of your window of what you can tolerate. There's people we can turn to, who are the people that we can reach out to when we're having a tough time, who can offer us physical support, informational support, emotional support, naming those people and telling them you're gonna be using them. And then there's that internal scripting that in how we talk to ourselves in those moments. And I feel like every new parent needs a mantra or catchphrase that they go back to. So that can be um, something that feels really cheesy, uh, like, You know, I would never be given anything that I can't handle or some of those, like, you know, (laughs) (laughs) adages, or that can be something really practical. Like, this is a moment in time. This moment is going to pass so that we have some internal ways to talk to ourselves uh, from that sort of top-down coping.
0: And I think that one's a really important one as somebody who struggles with my nervous system being, Mm -hmm. and I've gotten much better at it over the last (laughs) 20 years. Where, yeah. you know, and because I'm raising teenagers now, which feels a lot like infants to me. me like too. <laughs> stress, The stress level, I, I const- the worrying, the not coming yeah. home on time and that stuff, it, it, it is affecting my nervous system a lot. Um, and, you know, the challenging bad choices that teenagers make. So, But I'll yeah. find myself doing that exact same thing um, where I'll be like, it feels so huge in the moment. Yeah, but I, rem- I, I can literally feel it in my body, and I will calm myself down, and I will, I will pause. Pause is my favorite word. Pause. Yes. It's not going to be like this forever. Yes, this is a moment in time because that that when you're in that fight or flight and your fear is like, woo, you're like, oh my god, I'm in so much danger. Like I'm yes. in so much danger. I have to react now. And yeah. no, actually, just breathe because. My brain's playing tricks on me.
1: Yes. (laughs) And also knowing that when that stress cycle has been activated, um, it's really helpful to complete it. And so the stressor will go away from our environment, but our body is still feeling really stressed. And so whether that is I'm going to use my breath, whether that's I'm going to like go take a walk to like move some of that energy around, whether that's I'm just going to go and like scream into a pillow, we need to release it or it can build up in really toxic ways to just go from like constant stressor to constant stressor to constant stressor. That's
0: why exercise I've always been, even though I know again, for a lot of, although I've never turned anyone away, I I feel like exercise has saved my life over and over Mm. and over again. And when I'm in that state, it it may be the last thing I actually want to do to be honest, but if I can get myself and for me, it doesn't even, I always say to women, it's not like showing up to a class or doing things that are outside of your what it, it may just be literally getting down and pushing yourself to complete fifty push ups, and you'll feel a shift in that in your body. Your your energy will shift.
1: Yeah, and I think that the the magic number for the serotonin boost, the like the brain you know happy um, happy hormones in the brain boost is eleven minutes. Of just like moving your body around. And so that could just be like dancing in your living room with your baby. Babies love pop music. I'm like classical music. If you want to, I, I use Britney Spears. <laughs> right. the, the beat of pop music is so, um, um, so nicely tempoed for babies, but yeah, exercise is, is really huge. And I know that birth injuries and, and um, you know, fatigue can sometimes make that challenging, but sometimes I talk about just like movement snacks so like you said you don't have to do an hour at the gym but you want to like run up and down the stairs three times like just yeah. to move some of that energy around you know totally
0: great advice yeah. um so you've given me some practical tips for moms who are in it let's talk a little bit more about birth trauma and also um loss um yeah. you know because I feel like you know that's a whole other level of complexity not better or worse per se it's just a whole other different level of complexity and i feel like those women are often further isolated
1: yes um so i'll come back to the rest of the the resiliency pieces but oh sorry oh no that's okay that's okay (laughs) um uh we'll come back to those because birth and reproductive trauma and loss are incredibly significant and when I think about birth or reproductive trauma, I think of it in terms of the physical. So that's when something really scary has happened, or when there was a lot of pain, um, or it feels like you know there was a life at risk. I also think of it in terms of um, sexual trauma because we know that survivors, sexual violence survivors, can be re-traumatized, you know, during the birth experience, and that sometimes negotiations with um, care providers, medical care providers, you know, b- bodies aren't. aren't given the consent uh or we aren't we don't talk about consent in the same way and when I worked as a doula uh, you know I would see that sometimes where somebody would be doing an internal exam on a birthing parent and the birthing parent would say no stop that hurts and they would say okay I'm almost done just 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 one more second Uh, rather than like got it I will respect your body and like and, and remove my hand right now um also uh structural trauma in terms of Parents who experience discrimination that can show up in the birth space and it creates a lack of safety and it can be really traumatic um, for people if their like gender pronouns aren't being used, if they feel um as though they are having um like a racist care provider provide them care. It's very distressing. Um, and then also emotional trauma in terms of feeling a real lack of control. Over what happens in that birth space and having an idea of what you thought your birth was going to be like and things unfolding in ways that you couldn't have anticipated and how disappointing and how um, traumatic it can be to have it you know going too fast or like not wanting a surgical birth and being traumatized by the experience going through surgery not very well supported so there's a lot of different things that that can happen and then also what can happen afterwards in terms of, um, you know, stays in the NICU or babies. Sometimes I talk about nursing trauma. Parents who wanted to nurse, but their babies uh, had a really tough time. They lost a bunch of weight, and they can get into checking behavior. Become quite obsessive about um, their baby's weight, or really distressed by um, uh, the protocol um, that that's given to parents who are trying to nurse around, like pumping, you know, tube feeding. Um, on a, you know, two to three hour cycle. It's a lot, a lot to Mm go through. And then of course, loss, knowing that people who have a history of, um, you know, miscarriage or stillbirth makes moving forward with birthing incredibly grief filled. And often those parents will talk about how they were really robbed of the anticipated experience of like, it's going to be so exciting and I'm going to meet my baby because there's such a level of sadness and fear embedded in the experience. And they're like, I just want to get to the end where I have a healthy baby. That's just, I just want to get there. I don't even want to like think about, um, you know, the pregnancy or the, or the getting pregnant.
0: Well, it's just riddled with anxiety.
1: Yes. Yeah. So riddled with anxiety. A, a
0: level of anxiety that's almost intolerable. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, and, and this is the piece and it, it, the piece about trauma that I find frustrating when I'm talking to kind of everyday people who aren't trauma informed is this mentality of, you know, you just get over things. Mm-hmm. And, and the truth is we may push through, but then if we don't process trauma in a, properly, it does continue to impact us throughout our life. And I think that's the piece that I'm always, yes, everybody is going to experience trauma at some point in their life. There are Times in our life and motherhood being one of them, where there's an excessive amount of vulnerability Mm -hmm. with our bodies and our minds and the experiences that we're having, uh, as well as the significance of these experiences we're dealing with bringing lives into the world and then being responsible for them. Um, So, you know, the idea that we expect mothers to just continue, just carry on now, Mm -hmm. carry on uh, that's the part that's for me frustrating. I'm not. I want to see more people become trauma-informed and just mm-hmm. simply learn how to hold space for people who've had traum- traumatic events happen So yes. help them move through them.
1: Yeah, and I think that um, uh, for me, I think it's important to also name that we use trauma uh, sometimes colloquially. Like we'll be like, oh, like I was so traumatized by this. And picking up on what you just said is there's a difference between um Uh, I'm disappointed and I'm upset and I have to do emotional processing um, and I'm grieving an experience, which is different from trauma in terms of this has not actually been processed by my brain into my long-term memory bank, which means that a part of us is still there, is still living in that moment. And that's where you can get post-traumatic flashbacks, nightmares, our nervous system can turn on in ways that are incredibly unpredictable. And both of those are, are really important, but for someone to say, oh, I had a traumatic birth too, but, they, but that, has, that memory of what happened has been sort of filed away in their long-term memory bank, they're thinking of that as a memory versus somebody who, has had, who is still in the trauma of it, it's still current in their body. Does so, that make
0: sense? Yeah, would you, and it's interesting because this has come up a lot. I just uh, interviewed um, a woman who actually lost her son uh, a grown son to murder and she went to a grief mm. seminar and they talked extensively about the difference between grief and trauma and I don't know that a lot of times people know the difference
1: yeah and so I can do a, a really quick sort of neuroscience piece around that Perfect. Um, I love that uh so usually when we have had um uh an event in a day, whether it's a good event or a, a bad ev- event. I use um EMDR trauma therapy. So this is coming from EMDR theory. You could, there's probably other theories. But um, when we go to sleep at night, um, uh, we during our REM sleeps, so when our eyes are moving back and forth, we file away all the events of the day. So if you had a really stressful day, um, but it wasn't necessarily a traumatizing day, when you wake up in the morning. You know that it's done. You know that that was yesterday and that today is today. And, and so you, when you think of that day, you're like, oh man, I had a really rough day with my kids. I like was really late for work, like yesterday kind of sucked, but today's a fresh day. So we know that it's over. When we've had a traumatic event, like a difficult birth, um, like you know, losing a child, um, or a period of time that has been uh, incredibly stressful, that system floods. And so we can't actually file away all of the events of the day. Um, uh, cortisol impacts this, a whole bunch of stuff can impact this system. So what happens is rather than knowing that what happened is over and done with, there's a part of our brain that's still actively in the trauma. And so this is why we can have flashbacks and why we can um, be sort of hyper hyper oh, aroused because hasn't been put in the past. And so when we're using EMDR therapy, we're actually doing reprocessing of the memory. And so we want it to be file away in the long-term memory bank. So it doesn't just jump out at us at any time. That doesn't mean that what happened will ever be okay. And so when working with clients, I'll say like, we can reduce the flashbacks and we can reduce the like body triggers, but what happened was still awful. And so then there's a whole bunch of how do I grieve? what happened? And how do, I, how do I sit in the disappointment? That, that sucks. I don't get a redo. I've lost someone or I've lost this really important experience. But that's different from the nervous system response when a, a memory hasn't been appropriately um, stored. So, And I
0: don't think that we live in a, gul- a culture that really understands how to grieve, how to grieve rather. And that grief ritual is not common. I mean, you'll see it. I've seen you know, and I've learned about it with my own kind of struggles in life, right? To allow myself to, if I've gone through something that has been either heavy or potentially traumatic, mm-hmm. process the trauma, but then to also give myself little legitimate time to grieve. Yes. Like legitimate time to feel the emotions, to cry, to to go through whatever I need to go through in terms of expressing the sadness that I feel, uh, and giving myself complete permission to do that. But I feel that I see a lot of people, women, mothers, particularly mm-hmm. who have things that they need to grieve, but really don't have the support Yes. to, they, they've got it again, get up and they, they probably don't even need months. They need maybe days or weeks yes. to, to take care of themselves and, and, and that piece is, you know, when you're walking around carrying unprocessed grief,
1: mm. it,
0: it literally feels like you're carrying a ton of bricks with you.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So, Absolutely.
0: you know, for me, I'm always trying to encourage people. I just helped a friend of mine the other day who's grieving an adverse experience with her adult son and, you know, a very successful woman, but she hasn't even been able, she's not been able to clean our house. Yeah. For the last six months, and it was all she needed was somebody to come and just be there with her.
1: Yes. Yeah. And it, it depends on where people are in, in their trauma memory too, because when there's been a, an immediate crisis, um, generally we don't start with uh, you know how do we feel about it. We just start with what happened, just building the narrative. And then this happened, and then this happened, and then this happened, and then this happened. So when there's been something like a natural disaster. Um, we don't expect people in the early days to be able to to do any processing. We just start with what happened, and then once we have the what happened, once our brains can wrap our, wrap itself around that, then we go to and so where are you in that? So what are the parts that were really scary? What were the parts that you feel really proud of yourself around? Like what are the different parts in this? And. Some of that stuff will be appropriately processed by the brain, and then you can do that grief work. And some of it may not be, and so that's where I would use a trauma-specific therapy, um, a body therapy, EMDR, something to help soothe the nervous system around that. And I, um, uh, I, when people tell me that it's that they feel traumatized, it doesn't matter to me whether or not they're having PTSD systems. And like, if that's the narrative you have of your story, then like that's what we're going to use. Um, but there's a few different ways that you can work with that some of that can be done you know just in conversation and just in like verbal processing or like writing Um, and then some of that needs um, a a trauma specific reprocessing therapy like that doesn't tend to get better with talking
0: and and yes right because that's a that's something that a lot of people don't realize that talk therapy sometimes is not going to be the thing that is in fact sometimes talk therapy can re-traumatize you yes
1: You just are enacting your trauma over and over and over, just reliving it over and over.
0: So, so EMDR is one type of therapy that you recommend for processing trauma. Mm -hmm. And what are your other recommendations? And then maybe we can get back to the resilience. Yeah.
1: Um, So there's a lot of sensory motor or somatic again. So it's a body therapy. I don't use those. So I don't know quite as much about them, but I believe it has to do with queuing up that um, specific place of trauma and then like working through that. I'll be
0: finding out more about it because I'm interviewing Kate White from the States. Do you know her?
1: I don't, but that's very cool. I'm she so was, glad to hear uh, that. She uh,
0: is the founding director of birth, um, a perinatal birth psychology uh, foundation in the state. Cool. So. Yeah. She's, cool. she does that. She's a somatic therapist. So yeah. I'll let you know about that. Very
1: Cool. And there's also one called brain spotting, which I think is similar to EMDR, but it's, a, it's a little bit different. I don't know anybody who does brain spotting, but it's starting to gain some traction in the trauma community of uh, stuff that can be really um, supportive. So there's a lot of different ways. And so just, if you're looking, if you're interested in that, just like asking, um, you know, therapist counselors, like, how do you work with trauma? Um, and and seeing if they use a trauma specific modality, um, Mm -hmm. that feels good for you, for you.
0: And so that's, so which which brings us to another challenge because, and this is something, you know, systemically that has been frustrating, especially having a kid in crisis that I feel has PTSD from Mm -hmm. first year of life, Mm -hmm. uh, and being caught in the system that a lot of covered therapy is -hmm. outdated. Yeah. So what do you suggest if somebody is trying to find free or covered healthcare, like what are your suggestions for somebody who really can't afford it but wants to start helping themselves?
1: So um, there's a, a book called The Body Keeps the Score. And so that okay. is a book that often you can get through, through libraries and it gives a really good overview of trauma um, for a lot of, of different people. And then also, I believe that there's some tips around um, some yoga trauma therapy that you can do at home, which would, you know, it's sensory, it's it's, it's body-based. Um, and then uh, the author also talks about EMDR. But I'm a really big fan of, depending on where you live, some hospitals do have trauma therapy programs. And so checking in with... Um, to see like, what's available uh, that, that could be covered for me. I mean, I live in Ontario, so you know, a lot of things are OHIP covered. I know that's not true for everyone. And then students, reaching out to people who are learning trauma therapy modalities, we need to practice. And so mm-hmm. reaching out to students that often you can get things at a much more affordable rate. Um, uh, and so that's also a place that I often encourage people to check out. What are the trauma therapy schools? Where do they work? And could I connect with somebody there?
0: Yeah, it's a great idea. And I feel that a lot of um, trauma therapy, uh, you know, education centers do really work on a sliding scale. Or if you call and you talk to them about your situation, I I think there's tons of online resources. And The Body Keeps Score is an amazing
1: book. Right. Uh, It's a great place to start. Yeah. And then also always ask somebody if they have sliding scale. I I don't advertise this. um, but I do keep two pay-what-you-can spots at any given time. And once somebody has it, it's theirs until they don't need it anymore. Um, and so that, that just comes from people asking to be like, hey, do you offer sliding scale? And I'm like, yeah, here's how I do that. So just because somebody doesn't advertise it on their website doesn't mean um, that people don't offer those things. So it's worth asking.
0: And for body work, I mean, does that mean that, so for example, if somebody was far away, could you do body work virtually like this or no?
1: Um, yeah, I, I've done EMDR, um, it, it depends on the person that you're working with. So I've done EMDR with people virtually. Um, some people do, some people don't. And then I believe you can somatically, but I, I don't know, I don't know the answer to that one.
0: Okay, no worries. Yeah. So um, I'm just cognizant of the time and I am so grateful for all of the things that I learned from you today. Um, if you could just close out just letting us know where people can find you
1: easiest? Yeah, so you can find me at oliviascoby.com or Postpartum Support Toronto. And Postpartum Support Toronto has a ton of free online resourcing. We do um, online courses for new parents. Um, We've got one on DBT, one on expressive arts therapy, one with self-compassion, working with self-compassion, and one with working through guilt and shame. And there's, uh, uh, if you want the resiliency pieces, we also have a free workbook you can download that goes through all of the different uh, resiliency pieces and how you can cultivate that with your own life. Just a little workbook at home. So check it out.
0: Yeah, I know your resources are amazing. I have learned so much from uh, you, not just today, but in general. You are doing such great work, Olivia. You are such a contribute, uh, like an amazing contributor to to society and to moms. And I'm just so thankful for you, as I'm sure everyone that meets you is thankful. Yeah,
1: for and thank you so much, Father, and thank you as well. I know that you do a ton of resourcing and community building in like really incredible ways so thank you as well for everything that you do
0: I'm so glad we got to do this I hope we can do it again sometime
1: yes we bye can. Olivia have a great okay. day thank you thanks bye, bye.